Let me pray. Father, we delight in this week. This is such a good time uh, of the annual calendar for those who follow Jesus because we take time out to remember. We get to come again to your table this Friday and reflect together. And then for the rest of the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, we're celebrating, we're anticipating resurrection itself. And so we pray, God, that this would be a time where we renew our faith and commitment, those of us that already follow Jesus. And we pray it will be a time where friends and family and people that we love and care about who might not know you would also come to realize who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that would be our prayer. And we would ask right now that you would speak to us and teach us as we open our hearts and our minds to you and say, uh, Lord, have your way. May your will be done in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, we've been referring to the fact that there's this great big change that happens from um, the triumphal entry, you know, Palm Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and everybody's screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're laying down palm branches. And that was really because they suspected that he was, in fact, the Messiah. He'd been doing some things and saying some things that no other would-be Messiah was quite able to pull off, right? So he's different than the other candidates for Messiahship. And so they're thinking he, he just might really be the one. And that's why the crowds rallied the way they did. And they expected him to come in and overthrow the Romans and yada, yada, yada. The rest would be go just according to plan. Uh, but then Jesus came into the city and he said things and he did things that really they didn't anticipate. One of the things that we're going to look at this morning, it was a teaching that happened much earlier in Jesus' ministry, but it's exactly the kind of thing uh, in Jesus' teaching that caused them to reject Jesus between that Palm Sunday and that Good Friday. Uh, this is one of those messages where, you know, I'm not going to make any guarantees about the quality. Sorry. Um, but I do promise this, that when you leave here, if somebody asks you the question, what was the message about? You will be able to tell them. You will have clarity around this. This is a very simple message. It's based on a, on a brief passage that we find, a brief passage of scripture. And really we're going to focus on just one single command in that passage. This is where Jesus says, do not judge. And just to make sure you all know what to say if somebody asks you after the service, what was the sermon about, uh, you'll be able to say, do not judge. So we're going to say that phrase together. I believe it's up there. Yeah, so repeat this with me. Here we go. Let's say it. Do not judge. That was good, but not good enough. So we're going to say it one more time. And this time, I want you to get out your fingers, okay? We're going to do a little bit of finger wagging. This will, this will help you actually in saying this. We're going to do this one more time. You're going to use your index finger to point as you say it for emphasis, right? Um, I know that you don't have a problem with judging, but probably the person next to you does. And this is going to be your opportunity to just with attitude, with some sass, do some sanctified finger pointing to drive the point home. Are you ready? Here we go. We're going to say it now. One, two, use your index finger. Three, do not judge. Doesn't that feel good? It's a funny thing how sneaky judgmentalism is. You can actually start to feel judgmental towards people even as you point and say, do not judge. That's how sneaky it is. And that is what Jesus says. He says, do not judge. And he 
He doesn't really give us any exceptions. It's not do not judge, but in these cases you can. He doesn't say if they have annoying, quirky personalities, go ahead and judge. He doesn't say that. Uh, He doesn't say if they have some really glaring faults, you can go ahead and judge that. He doesn't say that. He, He doesn't say if they have weird religious beliefs that you know are not biblical. These are not right. These are stupid things to believe. Go ahead and judge away. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say if their sexual practices are askew, if their sexual orientation is off, or their politics is different, or they have lots of tattoos, or they don't have any tattoos, whichever you are, wherever you are on the side of that issue. Or if they are just overwhelmingly unlikable, go ahead and judge. Jesus does not say that. Uh, in fact, he says, do not judge. No exceptions. That's what he says. In his kingdom, there is zero tolerance for a judgmental spirit. In fact, Jesus actually got in trouble for his refusal to be judgmental toward people who everybody else, especially the religious leaders, loved to judge. Jesus wouldn't judge them. We read in Luke 11 that uh, one time the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, and this is what they muttered, they said, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And what they're implying is there's something wrong with this guy. You see, where people expected Jesus to bring judgment and, if you will, pronounce condemnation, which they thought would be the right moral thing to do. But instead of doing that, Jesus didn't cooperate with that. Jesus brought welcome and he brought acceptance to the very people that the religious leaders thought should not be welcomed. And they certainly should not be accepted because they're unacceptable. And that's how they were judged. In fact, you can look this up. Jesus uniformly extended non-judgmental acceptance to ethnic and religious rejects like Samaritans. He did it over and over. Uh, Jesus uniformly extended non-judgmental acceptance to pagan idolaters like Roman soldiers and Roman governors. Uh, He uniformly extended non-judgmental acceptance to the sexually scandalous like adulterers and prostitutes, to the corrupt and the traitorous like tax collectors, and to the unclean and untouchable, uh, socially speaking, like lepers. And the only people that we actually find Jesus condemning in his public ministry, interestingly enough, were religious leaders who condemned other people in the name of God. To them, Jesus spoke quite, quite strongly. Uh, to the religious leaders who passed judgment, Jesus said this one time. He said many things. This is just a little taste of it. He said, now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Whoo, okay, what do you really think? You foolish people, he says. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And we might ask at this point, well, did they get what Jesus was saying? I mean, it seems pretty blunt, but did they get it? Did they understand what Jesus was saying? And obviously they did, because look at the response. One of the experts in the law answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us. Yeah, 
That's exactly what Jesus was doing. Jesus was incredibly non-judgmental with sinners of every kind, with this one rather large exception, people who judged others from a place of religious superiority. Jesus confronted them as well as others and said, do not judge. And this flows out of the very purpose for which Jesus came from up there to down here. The apostle John tells us this about Jesus. He says, for Jesus, for God did not send his son, his son Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's why Jesus came. In fact, Jesus was so opposed to condemnation that even after he had died and been placed in the tomb and come back from the dead, uh, this is, these are the kinds of things that were taught about Jesus. The apostle Paul wrote these words to the church of Rome. He said, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Jesus succeeded in accomplishing the purpose for which he came. No condemnation for people trusting in Jesus. No condemnation for people who actually follow him, for those who are his disciples. No condemnation for people uh, who actually deserve quite a bit of condemnation. Do you want to tell the truth? Uh, There's a concept right there, isn't it? That that would be a a good sermon to preach. I'm going to have Daniel do that. Uh, All of us actually do deserve condemnation. God's condemnation. Why? Well, um, the short of it would just be this. We don't love God. We don't seek God. We don't serve God. We don't listen to God. We don't obey God. We don't honor God. We really would prefer to be God. That's why. That's sin at work in each of us. Our sin, the Bible says, separates us from God. It separates us from his truth. It separates us from the life that is found only in God. And the apostle John, when writing about this and this whole problem that people have of of being separated from God, deserving condemnation, the apostle John says, but God so loved the world. You see, in spite of the fact that the world did not love Jesus, God loved the world and sent Jesus into it. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. The idea there is from condemnation, but have eternal life. That's again, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to do something about the condemnation that we deserve. And so the church is a community of people who know what we deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve condemnation. We are lawbreakers. We have not loved God, served God, obeyed God in any way, shape, or form the way we should. We haven't honored him. But the church is also a community of people who know Jesus' acceptance and Jesus' forgiveness and Jesus' grace and his mercy and his welcome into his family and into his kingdom. And that should make us the least judgmental people on earth. Shouldn't it? Jesus says, do not judge. So we shouldn't. Now let me submit to you that a church should be uh, a, a radically inclusive, non-judgmental, grace-offering, soul-healing, fear-melting, 
misfit embracing community of mind-boggling acceptance. That's what we should be. We ought to so love and welcome people that they say, you know, I've got a lot of dark secrets inside, stuff I would never tell my therapist or my bartender or my 12-step group or my best friend, not even my dog, because they might judge me. I suspect they would, but I can stand up here and I can share this stuff about myself in church because I know about you guys, this is a place where people just don't judge. How are we doing at that? As a church, how are we doing at that as individuals? There's a diet guy named Dave Kinneman. You've heard his name before. He's actually the president of the Barna Research Group, and he's written multiple books, all based on the research that that group does. And he says this, he says, the number one primary characteristic non-Christians associate with Christians is being judgmental. <laughs> it's kind of sad, isn't it? It's kind of ironic too. I mean, especially in the face of Jesus' teaching, do not judge. <laughs> you know, I've heard some Christians try to justify this and say, well, you know, the real problem, it's not the church. It's, it's people who don't follow Jesus. It's just that they don't want to be confronted with real, you know, hard moral truth. And that's maybe some truth to that. But it is kind of funny how Jesus, the holiest man who ever lived, right, sinless, we're told, he said stuff like this. He said one time, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's kind of a narrow view of oneself, I think, right? Uh, I mean, I not only know the way, I am the way, he said. Uh, I not only have the truth, I am the truth, he said. I'm not only going to tell you that I know about life, I actually am the life, says Jesus. Wow. People who have read those words or people who heard him speak have had to wrestle with those kinds of statements throughout the centuries, right down to the present. And most people, when taking seriously those statements that Jesus made, you know, you have to conclude he was either a megalomaniac, a, a whack job. I mean, seriously, seriously did not understand the truth about himself or quite the opposite. It was exactly who he said he was. And what's so interesting to me is here is the, this individual who understands that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he's come from up there down to here, and he is also the most non-judgmental human being anyone ever encountered. I think most of us would have expected something different. Jesus' message today is really simple. Do not judge. It's not your job. It's not mine. Do not judge. You see, we must abandon the deeply rooted practice of blaming and condemning other people and learn, in fact, to actually focus on the brokenness right here and let him fix this. And we're going to talk more about that uh, in the, some weeks ahead, about what that looks like, you know, planks, specks in the eye, that kind of thing. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount now for months, and the, it's the most impactful talk ever given in human history. Uh, we're turning now to a part of the Sermon on the Mount uh, that we encounter in Matthew chapter 7. And it's all about how people mess up their relationships. 
Jesus is making observations about us, about each other, how we relate well or poorly, how these relationships are supposed to work in his kingdom, in the kingdom of God. And this morning, we are learning that in Jesus' kingdom, if we really want to live in the reality of the kingdom of God, we have to give up judging other people. Uh, We have to give up condemning other people. We have to give up trying to control other people. Jesus says, have I said this? Do not judge. Do not judge. And now we have to be really clear on what Jesus forbids. So let me say a little bit about what this text does not mean for a moment, okay? It does not mean we have to give up making moral discernments or giving up living wisely in light of the truth of God's word. It does not mean that. Silly example here, but it'll help make the point. If you go to a dentist and he or she is checking out your mouth, your teeth, your gums, etc., and uh, they say back to you, I see your, your gums are kind of receding. I see you have a few cavities. Uh, it looks to me like maybe you're not flossing. Anybody here like to hear the dentist say that to them? Well, it's actually your dentist's job to say that to you if that happens to be the case. This is not condemning me as a person if the dentist reflects truth back to me. Now, if my dentist were to say to me, you are an idiot. I have seen better looking teeth in a monkey. Your teeth are yellow stained, dirty, crooked, and disgusting. I despise your mouth hygiene. You disgust me. Don't ever come back here again. If your dentist says something like that to you, you might want to change dentists. Um, You see, in our relationships, in our families, in our workplaces, in those places where we go to school, we've always got to discern. Uh, Is what's being said to me right? Is it wrong? Is it truth? Is it falsehood? Is it wisdom? Is it foolishness? Discerning is something a disciple of Jesus is actually called to do, called to practice, called to always get better at. We need to train ourselves to hold people responsible, even hold ourselves responsible when truth is being spoken. We need to discuss failure, whether it's in us, sometimes even with other people when it's appropriate. We even assign penalties where penalties are appropriate. And that can be the case in school or at work and even in a whole parenting process. You know, there are times when we need to do this. Uh, That's just part of living with discernment. But we need to learn to do all of those things without attacking another human being's worth, without forgetting their dignity as human beings. That was something Jesus never did. He never diminished a person's worth or dignity. Now also, Jesus is not saying that in being non-judgmental, you have to be naive or live like a gullible little child. That's not what he's calling us to. You know, I get calls all the time. They begin like this. This is not a solicitation. What do you think I do? I hang up. Yeah. Why? Because it's a solicitation. Yeah. I don't have to be gullible. I get emails all the time. They kind of go something like this. It's always from a rich princess or queen or king, a very wealthy individual, uh, somebody who's a fugitive in Africa, and they want to share their fortune with me, but they just need some help first. What do you think I do with those emails? I, I, I respond, this is how I become a wealthy man. <laughs> yeah, no, I hit Delete. I don't bother going any further. I get text messages every week inviting me to click on this link and check out what I've won. What do you think I do with those? Delete. Absolutely. Now, 
do not judge does not mean act like a moron, okay? Do not judge does not mean you have to put up with being scammed when you suspect a scam or being mistreated or being abused or being taken advantage of in any way. That's not what do not judge means. The ju this is very important. The judging that Jesus is forbidding has to do with having a spirit of condemnation and rejection of people. That's what Jesus is condemning. Jesus forbids me to indulge my sinful desire to feel superior to you, to power up over you, to not want to treat you with dignity or with the worth that God has given you, to not want to think about your humanity. And if we are honest, I think we have to admit that there is a certain twinge of pleasure that comes with expressing contempt toward others. I know some of you have never done this, so you'll just have to take my word for this. But, uh, you know, when we feel superior, when we feel better, when we feel bigger, when we dismiss or condemn another person, there's actually some aspect of that that feels pretty good. Truth is, we have been trained by living in the kingdoms of this earth. You know, you have a kingdom, I have a kingdom, corporations have a kingdom, nations have a kingdom. There are all kinds of little kingdoms. And we have been trained by living in the kingdoms of this earth to pass judgment as a way of trying to control other people, as a way of elevating ourselves. And you can even pass judgment effortlessly. You can pass judgment on people without even thinking about it. You can pass judgment on people without even using words. I wonder, have you ever had someone in another car while you were driving pass judgment on you? Has that ever happened? You know, you do something stupid. We've all done stupid things in a car. You pull into someone's lane. You didn't see them. They were in your blind spot. Uh, you, uh, you don't use a turn signal and it nearly causes an accident. You miss a stop sign altogether. And somebody is affected by this. And what they do is they give you the look. Have you ever gotten the look? from people? Oh man. The look, it asks the question, how did you ever get a driver's license? You, never mind. <laughs> you are so stupid. You made another mistake. You ought to be ashamed. You ought to be condemned. In fact, I condemn you. That's the look right there. How many here have ever received the look? How many of you have given the look? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Why would we do this, though? If judging and condemning is something that Jesus forget, forbids, uh, if it damages other people, if it actually affects negatively your own spirit, why would we do this? And that's just a silly example of condemnation. We actually condemn inside our families and outside our families with far more sophisticated kinds of efforts than that. But why would we do this? I think the answer in part, at least, at least a little bit is it's just fun. It feels good. It makes me feel superior over you. If I'm judging you, if I'm condemning you, I'm a, I'm a little better than you are, you see. Religious people in particular have a problem being Judgmental. In fact, very often the most devout, uh, the more devout or the more disciplined or the more rigorous a person is in their religiosity, the more judgmental they become or can be. One of Jesus' most unforgettable portraits 
uh, around this subject of judgmentalism in the Bible is a story you're all familiar with. We've studied it together before. It's the story of the prodigal son. Uh, Jesus says this boy, the prodigal son, goes off, leaves his father, actually insults his father, takes uh, a part of the fortune, the family fortune uh, that he was claiming was his. It wasn't necessarily his, but the father gives it to him. He takes it off to a foreign land. And this is what Jesus says about that prodigal son. It says he squandered his wealth in wild living. Those are Jesus' words. And then he comes to his senses and he realized things are not good. He spent all his money, he's starving to death, and he reasons to himself, my father treats his servants better than I'm being treated right now. And he goes back home and he plans a, an apology speech and all this, that, and the other. And his dad runs out and gets him and embraces him and receives him back and rejoices over him, gives him forgiveness, all these things. But his older brother observes what's going on and becomes quite angry. Refuses to join in the celebration, in fact. The father has to now go out and talk to this son, the older brother. And uh, the older brother says these words to the father. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. That's the resentful, judgment, judgmental spirit right there, you see, embodied in the older brother. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, and yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What Jesus is doing here, he's painting a picture. This is just brilliant, brilliant teaching uh, on Jesus' part. Um, Notice when Jesus unfolds this parable, unfolds this story, uh, he has the elder brother say these words, but when this son of yours, that's what the older brother says to the dead, when this son of yours, not, not this brother of mine. It's just illustrative of the fact that love always identifies with. What does judgment do? It always distances from this, this son of yours. Also, earlier in the story, Jesus never said anything about prostitutes. Did you notice that? The older brother just kind of makes that part up. He throws that part into the story. And I think what's going on is if we were able to get into the head or the heart of this older brother, I think kind of what's going on, and this is sort of what he's thinking. Uh, he may be thinking, I'm frustrated that I'm missing out. My younger brother went off to this land, squandered everything. Now he's come back and he's been, I'm frustrated that I'm missing out. I'm frustrated and afraid that the good life really is just having as much sex as you can with as many people as you can, drinking as much alcohol as you can possibly drink, partying as much as you can humanly party. That's what I would do if I could, but I can't because I have to be here slaving away for you, dad. And so my brother gets to have all the fun and then gets to come home and be welcomed back. That's not fair. That makes me mad. I suspect that's what he's thinking. Sometimes self-righteous Christians, and believe me, I have that gear I definitely have that gear in me. Um, we, we will just pretend, right, that we're above earthly pleasures or, or fleshly desires. We're superior to that. Sin no longer has that type of allure. And the elder brother would never have said, oh, yeah, I long to go off and try the stuff my younger brother just did. Uh, no, he would say, no, I'm, I'm above that. Of course not. Those things have no attraction to me. But the reality is 
You, you, many of you may not know this, but, but sin is fun, at least for a season. And that last little caveat there is kind of important, at least for a season, often not a very long one. But sin is fun. This, this is why people sin. Did, did you know this? It's fun. There's a pastor, Craig Groeschel, who says, if sin isn't fun, you're not doing it right. <laughs> I, I think he's probably right, you know. I wouldn't know. I rarely sin. But a lot of times, a lot of times, religious people get very self-righteous and judgmental because deep down inside, we're afraid we're missing out on the fun. You know, the good stuff, the blessed life is really over there somewhere, not here. And so we judge because it makes us feel superior. And maybe we feel it's the only fun we're really allowed to have. And so we want to take on what others are doing or not doing and criticize them and judge them, regardless of whether they believe in who we believe in. There's a television show that I know nobody here has probably ever seen. It's called The Simpsons. And one of the characters uh, in it is a guy named Ned Flanders. You know who Ned is? He's an evangelical Christian neighbor to Homer and to Marge Simpson, right? And there's I, one little scene. He and his wife had been away at a Christian camp, and they come back, and Homer wants to know, what exactly do you do at a Christian camp? And, you know, Ned Flanders tells him, well, we, we learn how to be more judgmental. <laughs> and we can chuckle at that, but boy, ouch. That, that's what people think. Ouch. And truth be told, it's not just religious people, though, in our day who are learning to be more judgmental. I, I would say, yeah, yeah, we have a problem with this. We absolutely do. But so does everyone else. When it comes to judging other people, we're all kind of in the same boat, follower of Jesus or not follower of Jesus. There's a popular um, philosopher. He's, a, he's an atheist himself. His name is Alain de Baton. And he's done a lot of TED Talks. He's written a lot of books. Very clever, uh, very gifted speaker. He says that we are actually trained in our world to judge others in order to feel better about ourselves. This is an observation he makes as he observes uh, culture and society. Uh, his observation is that our world is becoming more and more divided, more and more judgmental, and more and more condemning. And he uses uh, one example that we could all immediately relate to, and that's politics. He says, if a person disagrees with you politically in our day and age, they're just not mistaken. They are idiots. They are fools. They are stupid. They are blind. They are morons. They are ignoramuses. They deserve to be silenced and shunned and shamed. That's the world we live in, says he. I think he's pretty accurate, actually. Well, here's the thing. In contrast to that, Jesus invites us away from the kingdoms of the earth and into the reality of living in his kingdom where we lay aside judging and condemning and superiority and blaming. Jesus says, do, what is it? Do not judge. So this week we, we need to ask God, God help us. This is a problem in here. God help us with this judging thing. We have to ask because this is not something we can just stop doing on our own. 
It comes too naturally as a part of that, that, that piece of us that's sinful. We just, we do it without thinking. We need to ask God, would you make me an oasis of acceptance and a desert of condemnation? And just start right where you are. Start at home. Start at school. Start with roommates. Start with parents, siblings, co-workers. God, help me stop judging and condemning them. And we need Jesus to help us with this. We can't stop sinning by just trying harder to stop sinning. We can't stop having a judgmental spirit by just trying harder to, have, uh, to stop having this judgmental spirit. And so I ask God to replace a spirit of judgment with a spirit-powered spirit acceptance or welcoming attitude towards others. I, I, I accept that my role is not judge and jury with regards to other people. And we'll talk about this more later, but it's, it's more to focus in and say, Jesus, would you work on the things in me that are broken? That's what we need to do. There's a very powerful dynamic at work with Jesus teaching here in this passage. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I think Jesus is observing kind of a general law of human nature, sort of a social dynamic that is mostly true. Not every social dynamic is always true, but this is mostly true. It's the law of reciprocity. The idea that you tend to get back what you give out, you tend to. If you give out love, oftentimes you get love back. If you give out anger, oftentimes you get anger in return. If you give distance, you get distance. If you give sarcasm, well, you're probably going to get sarcasm back. If you give joy, you tend to get joy back. What you give, you actually tend to get back, says Jesus. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So I want to give you an image. This is a bucket and this is a thimble here on the screen. I want you to lock that image in. Because frankly, you and I, we decide every single day what measure we will use. We do this all the time, consciously or not so consciously. Frankly, uh, you know, do you give a, a bucket of encouragement to people or do you give them a thimble? Do you give a bucket of mercy to people when they've done something wrong or when they've failed or when they've let you down? Or do you give them a thimble full? Do you meet out a a bucket of anger to people? Or do you give them a thimble full of anger? How about when it comes to judgment? Jesus says, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. What measure do you use? I'll tell you this, when you judge me, which you all will, because I will do something I shouldn't, uh, or I'll fail to do something I should, uh, I would prefer you give me a bucket of mercy and grace. That's what I want. Uh, I want you to remember that there's a whole story, a big long story. I'll tell it to you if you want. A big long story behind all my brokenness, right? I want you to take into account that when I do something worth judging, you know, my genes are in there. My genes are very, not these genes, I mean, DNA. My, my genes are very imperfect. Uh, I want you to take into account that my upbringing was way, way, way far from perfect. My deficiencies are many. My wounds, I have many, 
Remember, I'm Irish and Scandinavian. Keep that in mind. I'm introverted. I'm insecure. I've got scars. I don't like to plan a lot. When I was 60 years old, my cat died. I, I want you to take all of these things into consideration and just give me a bucket full of mercy and grace. That's what I want. Question is, do I give grace and mercy by the bucket? That's the question. When I look at other people, do I remember that you have stories and you have wounds, you have genes too that are imperfect and you have parents that were imperfect and hurts just like me. All kinds of stuff happened to you. Do I give mercy by the bucket or do I give mercy and grace by the thimbleful? With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, Jesus says. And when you can see past a person's surface failures or their shame or their unloveliness and you just give someone a bucket of mercy that they weren't expecting and they know they don't deserve, here's the thing, that can change them forever. You've all probably heard by now, it's an old story about a guy named Tom Watson who is the CEO of IBM but most of you have heard this. This is going back into the 50s and 60s. One of the executives back then who worked at IBM uh, made a decision that ended up costing IBM $10 million, which doesn't sound like anything today. But back then, that was even a lot of money for a corporation, right? And so this guy knows, I, I'm, I'm toast. I just made a huge mistake that cost the company lots and lots of money. So he comes into Tom Watson's office office with his resignation in hand and he, he just says I'm here so you can fire me because I know that's what I deserve and Watson said fire you you got to be kidding you know and, and you know the punchline I just spent 10 million dollars educating you right so get back to work that's what he told him he said get back to work it's not a it's not that different of a story for Peter you know the story Peter denies Jesus three times right at the moment of Jesus greatest need and then he meets Jesus after the resurrection and I imagine I, I don't know exactly what Peter was thinking but I imagine it was something like Jesus I'm here to resign I'm, I know you're going to fire me I'm guessing that's what he thought <laughs> and I can imagine Jesus saying fire you I just invested my life in you. I just endured a crucifixion for you. I'm in the resurrection business, not the business of condemning people. So you, you get back to work. And if you've ever read the end of the gospel of John, what does he say? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep three times. Can you imagine the relief and the joy that exploded. I'm sure it just exploded in Peter's heart in that moment. That was a pivotal moment for Peter. That changed his life. A moment of mercy, a moment of grace. Peter was never the same. And I would just ask you, do you understand? Do you get it? that that is what Jesus did for you. 
Because understand, you failed him. You denied him. You disobeyed him. You cost him his life. And you know what he does for you? He gives you a bucket full of mercy and grace. And then he says, go out there and do life with me, walk with me, live with me, follow me, and do not judge. And I know it's hard. <laughs> Some people just seem to need a really good judging. But here's the thing. That is not your job, nor mine. We're not qualified to judge other people. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's Jesus' teaching. Now, if you follow Jesus, I know that this raises questions, all this stuff that I'm saying, yeah, but what, you know, because as Christians, we often do wonder, well, how do we stand up then for what's right and what's good? And what's true and what's moral? I mean, without being self-righteous, without being judgmental, I mean, how do we do that? And I'll just say that, that that can be tricky to figure out sometimes. I love what Dallas Willard used to say about this. He, he said this. He said, we should practice gentle non-cooperation with evil. Every word of that statement is important. We should, this is what we should do, practice. Practice, 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 practice. Non-cooperation. Non-cooperation with evil. You know, if you're on the job and you're finding that you're being asked to lie, to cheat, to steal, to gossip, whatever it is, you should just do your work really diligently, really well for the glory of God, with God's help, and then just offer gentle, gentle non-cooperation with evil. Don't participate in gossip if that's what's going on. Don't steal if that's what others are doing. Don't lean in anxiously on the gossip thing. What, 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 what'd you say? Really? Just be utterly disinterested. Don't ask for more details. The person gossiping will get no gratification out of gossiping with you. Just stink at gossiping. You get the idea? Because remember, if sin isn't fun, you're not doing it right. And, and we don't want to do things that are not fun. So make sure you stink at sinning. You know, if it's stealing, just stink at stealing. If it's cheating, just stink at cheating. If it's gossiping, just stink at gossiping. No one will ever want to do those things with you. That's offering gentle non-cooperation with evil. That's... Um, I think that's good advice. Here's the thing. Sin turns out to be kind of fragile, actually. Uh, it, it's not any fun unless you can do it with others. So there's got to be collusion, and collusion has to be sustained in order to really enjoy sin. So one follower of Jesus who offers gentle non-cooperation with evil can stop all kinds of sin, actually. We need to ask God to help us live lives of such vitality in his kingdom and, and such goodness, such fun, such joy, such gratitude from being loved and forgiven and known by God, from being shown buckets of mercy and grace that we have more fun than sin can deliver. That's who we need to be. 
And when we live this way, others are going to want to know, where does the vitality come from? Where do you get the joy? I mean, you're struggling with this problem or that problem, but you, you seem joyous. Where does all the mercy and grace come from that I, that I see in your life? And then we say, well, you know, it, it, Jesus, Jesus, of course, that's where it comes from. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this week, we're going to set aside all judgment. If somebody asks you what was the sermon about, you're going to be able to say to them what it was, it was about. It was do not judge, right, exactly. And if they ask you whether or not the sermon was good, you're going to say what? Yes. Do not judge. <laughs> Come on, people. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pause now to, to live just a moment in the wonderful reality that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we are people who deserve condemnation. But that is not what you've given us. And I would just say, if you don't know what it is to be in Christ, Christ Jesus, if you've never turned your life over to him and asked him to forgive your sin, to free you from judgment, to free you from condemnation, so that you know that you are at peace and accepted by God through the power of the cross, through the love and the forgiveness of Jesus, that's something you can do right now just by telling him you want to be a part of his family. You want to have your sins forgiven. You want a bucket of mercy and grace, and you want to start following him. Just ask him. Give your life to him. Turn it over to him right now. God, I pray that you would allow all of us to live in the radical freedom from condemnation that is found in Jesus. And then, Father, make us conduits of blessing and encouragement rather than judges and condemners. When we confront evil, help us to wisely offer gentle non-cooperation. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.